Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Now, an injury to the spinal cord can be hugely traumatic and life-changing. While currently there are no proven treatments that protect against the consequences of injuring this vital part of our body, work goes on to change that. My next guest is involved in one line of research. Uh, her name is Alexandra Serafin. She's a PhD researcher at the School of Engineering uh, at the University of Limerick. Welcome to the programme, Alexandra. Um, how often do we see an injury that damages the, the spinal cord and, and how serious is that typically? Um, so first of all, hi, Jonathan, and hello to all um, of your listeners. Thank you for having me on. So typically, um, the incidence rate of a spinal cord injury in the United States alone is about 12,000 people annually. While you might think that that is not a very high number, unfortunately, due to the fact that we currently do not have um, good um, therapeutic strategies to treat this ailment, the number of people who have this ailment rises every year. Um, and most of the time, people sustain a traumatic um, spinal cord injury from traumatic events such as um, accidents, falls, and in particularly motor vehicle accidents. And when we talk of the, the sort of accidents that leave people paralyzed, is, is it typically a complete severing of the spinal cord or, or, or does that not need to happen for someone's mobility and quality of life to be seri- seriously impaired? No, typically we do not see um, a complete transection of the spinal cord. A lot of the times it is um, due to trauma that uh, one part of your of the spinal cord may get damaged. But um, due to the fact that the spinal cord is such an intricate and complex tissue, um, that can then cascade further um, to further damage. Um, for example, if depending on where the uh, damage is sustained, the severity can be quite different. So for example, if you sustain a spinal cord injury um, quite close to your neck, so more in the cervical area, you are then possibly looking at um, being paralyzed from that area down. Right. I googled spinal cord because I was wondering was you know it was it one of those things that is sort of a, a, a simplification for for ease of reference but um it really does look like a, a giant cord <laughs> that goes yeah. down from your neck to your to your tailbone mm-hmm. and it's disgusting I have to say don't google it if it, I highly recommend but but um what is it is it just a bundle of nerves or are there various layers to the spinal cord um obviously there are very various layers to the spinal cord but the main part of your spinal cord it not only um, encompasses your cells for example your axons and your neurons but also has a lot of supporting cells that support your spinal cord in its function such as astrocyte or glial cells so there's a bunch of cells that um, integrate and play a part in all of this and also as with any tissue within the body you also have something called an extracellular matrix which surrounds your cells and gives it structure um, uh, and basically um, and helps the, the spinal cord um, do its its function. So in the spinal cord extracellular matrix, one of the major things that we can find is things like hyaluronic acid or collagen. And a lot of your view listeners can for maybe recognize the words hyaluronic acid or collagen as they are very hot uh, buzzwords in skincare <laughs> regimes today. Um, but mostly, most of the time, hyaluronic acid, collagen are present in almost all parts um, of your body, in your tissues. So what about um, spinal fluid? Is, this might be a really stupid question now, but is it is a spinal cord hollow or does it have a, a, a sort of a, what would I say, a, a a channel that that spinal cord um, flows through? Yes, it does. So actually your spinal cord, um, 
Okay, so let me dial back. So your spinal cord, um, it's if you looked at your pinky finger, that's about the size of your spinal cord. So it is quite small, yes? But within the actual cross-section of your spinal cord, you have two major um, areas, which are called the gray and the white matter, which basically um, provide different functions to your spinal cord. And within the very center of your spinal cord, you do have a little gap um, that allows for the cerebral spinal fluid to go up and down um, to your brain. So yes in the middle technically the spinal cord you can say is hollow to allow for that cerebral spinal fluid to pass so there are lots of different avenues to explore to to try and figure out how to treat spinal cord injuries what is the avenue you're looking at at the moment so the role that i'm looking into is to encompass tissue engineering strategies to um, replicate and regenerate the spinal cord so what tissue engineering is, it's an interdisciplinary science that aims to replicate and restore damaged tissues and functions in humans. Um, one of the major um, reasons why this is brought up a lot of the times is that it is estimated that only about 10% of the world's organ transplant needs are met. So um, as tissue engineers, as biomedical scientists, as engineers, and as medical um, research researchers, we are trying to look into alternative therapies to provide regeneration to tissues that don't necessarily necessarily involve organ transplantation yeah uh, again because you know the the waiting lists for organ transplantations can be very very long um so that's the area that we're trying to 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 be in to replicate um the spinal cord and provide regeneration in the best way that we can so i mean about 20 years ago there was great talk in the media about stem cells and mm -hmm. there was this impression given that if you got enough stem cells squirted them in an area and left it for long enough stuff would grow back now obviously we know that that is not the case nowadays yeah, unfortunately. But, <laughs> but what sort of materials can we use to repair areas like the the spinal cord which obviously have structural needs they've got mm -hmm. tissue needs and they also need to transmit the signals from the muscles to the brain and back again yes um exactly so stem cells initially were believed to be the 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 holy grail you could say but um as you mentioned with progressing research, we have found that just implanting stem cells alone does not provide the regenerative effect, um, as these stem cells unfortunately just died as they didn't have enough support. So what we're trying to do here is we're trying to provide that scaffolding or that support um, for, for cells to regenerate. And you can include stem cells into that if you want, or just provide the scaffold. But the materials that we're trying to use for this purpose are biocompatible biomaterials. So these materials um, basically have been designed and tested to to replace body parts without a negative body response. So what we're trying to um, not have is no encapsulation, no rejection, no scarring in the tissue. Um, so if you're, for example, looking at implanting um, a piece of glass into your body, your body would not react to that um, very well and it would form a fibrous scar layer around that um, piece of glass so that it doesn't further damage your body. So that is something that we are trying to um, limit when we are implanting things into your body. So what we're trying to do is to design these tissue engineering scaffolds, um, which aim to replicate the natural environment of the desired tissue in a biomimicry manner. So we're trying to replicate that tissue to have the most profound regenerative and healing um, effect. And um, as I mentioned before, 
hyaluronic acid and collagen um, are present in your natural extracellular matrix. And those were the basis of the materials that we used um, in our project. So we used hyaluronic acid and collagen derived gelatin as the basis of the scaffold that we're trying to implant into your spinal cord to then um, basically provide that scaffolding environment um, for regeneration. So on this program, we've talked about using um, 3D uh, printed plastic for replacing bones sometimes, um, although that's not a great solution. Hydrogels for softer materials. Uh, what are you using to try and recreate the environment and structure of the spinal cord? Yes, so um, what research has found is that particularly for the spinal cord cells, um, they tend to grow better when placed on electroconductive scaffolds than um, when compared to non-conductive scaffolds. So we tried to look at a myriad of ways that we can introduce electroconductivity into our scaffolds to increase that regenerative progress. Um, so one of the ways that you can do that is you can include carbon nanotubes, graphene, you can use um, electroconductive polymers such as polypyrene or um, P.PSS. And we specifically looked at P.PSS um, as it has been um, very, has been on the rise um, in research for this particular topic. But what we have found is that uh, the PSS component, component in P.PSS is actually quite toxic um, to cells when it degrades. So therefore its effective use in such regenerative um, strategies is won't be complete. Nice. Um, so then we started thinking about how we can overcome, overcome this um, process. So what we designed is that we synthesize P. nanoparticles that do not have any of that toxic PSS component um, by chemical oxidation polymerization in mini emulsion, very long name. <laughs> <laughs> but basically right. what we made is that we made P. nanoparticles that are electroconductive um, that do not have that toxic PSS component. And then we put those nanoparticles into our biomaterial scaffolds to then have an overall electroconductive scaffold. And and so what did you see when you started um, injecting this with um, stem cells or the sort of things that you need to 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 grow spinal cord back to 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 strength again? So for the purpose of our project, we didn't focus on incorporating stem cells into the scaffold yet. We wanted to particularly first look at what the scaffold, how it behaves um, without any cells. So to really break it down to its bare bones and see how it behaves um, in terms of its structural, mechanical and biocompatibility um, uh, effects. So what we found is that thanks to very um, precise cross-linking of our material, we were able to simulate the stiffness of the spinal cord very closely. So we got about one megapascal um, in its Young's modulus in the stiffness. Um, what does and that, that mean? So basically that means uh, what your cells, um, different cells in your body react to different stimulus differently. So for example, if you look at your leg or even um, some cells in your bones, when you walk, they experience a lot of um, force on them. So these cells will react better to higher forces than right. to lower forces. But in the spinal cord, you don't really have that much um, of forces um, impacted on them uh, as much as you would have, for example, in your bones. So you kind of have to match the environment to the cells that you're studying. So if you have too stiff of, of an environment to um, cells that are usually used to having a soft environment, then your cells will basically not work properly. Mm. So what we're trying to do again is we're trying to create this biomimicry, this um, replication of its natural environment. So 
one of the reasons that we try to match the stiffness of this material is to replicate its natural environment of the spinal cord. And, and so how are we doing with that? Because it seems like a very ambitious aim to to replicate the um, the softness, the conductivity, the solubility, all of these different properties of the human body um, to, to get the the implants or the source material to be as close to the human body as possible. Are we doing a good job there generally in terms of being able to find polymers and other substances that are just the right tension, strength, um, porousness and so on? Yeah. Um, personally, I think so, yes, that we are, um, especially with the amount of research that is going on in this area. Um, we are very, making very great strides in, in that area, in my opinion, um, especially with new approaches, um, new cross-linking strategies, and we're really um, beginning to really understand how particular materials work for the desired effects that we want to, that we want to impair. I know that your work is is aimed at a particular goal to to create it just in this one experiment to create a certain type of material. But I'm wondering, as a as a scientist, do you ever meet people uh, who are paralyzed or who will have suffered a spinal cord injury as part of your work, or is your work so far removed from a, a clinical setting that you 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 only imagine the sort of people that might benefit from the work that you're doing? Um, no, so I, I was lucky enough to um, be more in touch with uh, with the targeted audience uh, or the people that we're trying to help with with our science. We do have people contacting us um, a lot of the time asking for advice. What is the, the current state of the art on procedures? What are the clinical trials that are happening? And while I was also on a Fulbright research exchange at the University of California, San Diego, where I was working in the neuroscience department, and over there, there was a lot of intersection between clinical studies and uh, management of patients hmm. um, in spinal cord injury repair um, treatments as well. So I was lucky enough um, and grateful enough to be able to see the other side um, of science that maybe a lot of scientists would not be as lucky to have. How far are you away from um, trying this in uh, in a very real setting uh, in, in terms of the, the material itself? Um, right now, we're still a bit far off. Um, so the way that the regulatory bodies work is that first, you, when you have an idea such as this to create a new device or a new material, um, you first have to characterize it um, from start to finish. So that is the, the stage that we, we are, are at now, where we characterize the material in terms of mechanical properties, its chemical product properties, electroconductive biomaterial properties, etc. Um, but this is just the initial stages. Um, regulatory bodies, of course, as they should, have very stringent regulations placed um, upon um, going into clinical studies. And the first stage is testing your material in vitro. So that is with cellular culture, which we have conducted. Um, then the next step is moving to animal studies, um, which I know is a di difficult topic to approach, but currently there is no way to overcome it. Um, and we have completed initial um, animal studies in this area as well. And from the, the results that we have gathered now, then the next step would be to move to uh, more animal studies, bigger animals. And then if the regulatory bodies see that our results seem okay to them, then we can potentially move to clinical trials. Okay, so a long way to go, but the very best of luck. Fascinating work. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that was Alexandra Serafin from University of Limerick. Thank you so much for having me. Very cool indeed. 
Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.